lots and lots of spoilers. Welcome to Cooking with Max Mike Movies, with another in our recipe series in ancient times, the 90s. <laughs> Today, we'll be tackling the best way to prepare your murder victim for fine dining. Now, when preparing long pig, I think that's how they say it, long pig, do not neglect the liver. Yes, you can prepare it with fava beans and pair it with a nice Chianti, but please remember that navy beans or even kidney beans, little accidental joke there, work just fine. And the liver pairs nicely with a big Cabernet or even a good Bordeaux. So again, save the liver, Clarice. Thank, thank you, Julia. Yes, today we're taking on. Yes, that was a totally different person, and not totally at all different. Max. Our special guest, the ghost of Julia Child, yeah. speaking through me. Uh, <laughs> taking on the early '90s thriller, Silence of the Lambs. A movie that in many ways redefined the horror-thriller genre and scared the living bejesus out of audiences everywhere. I am your savory and well-marbled host, Max Levine, and with me is a man whose internal organs are no doubt both nutritious and delicious, Mike Luce. <laughs> Gee, thanks. What a recommendation. <laughs> that's, that's the closest I can get. I can't do the sound. That's okay. Yeah, so, Probably yes, know it was dubbed. We are talking Silence of the Lambs, adapted from the best-selling book by Thomas Harrison, part of the Hannibal Lecter trilogy, technically. Uh, no. This was it. There was no other movies. Never happened. <laughs> you keep believing that if it helps you to sleep. Did you see any of the other ones? I believe I saw all of them. I ah. saw Manhunter. Uh, we'll talk about this. In Adventures in yes, the Forbidden Zone? <laughs> we will march into the Forbidden Zone <laughs> and eat their livers. Uh, but... <laughs> Ooh, you do it better. I cheat. Uh, <laughs> what? How do you cheat? Well, I don't. My, I cheat. Trust me. Okay. Okay. But uh, we'll get to that. Yes, so there is, there is uh, first, we have, of course, business. Ooh. Yes. And the first part of business is what became of your lamb, Clary. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, we'll get there. You, you can, of course, find our entire back catalog of fava be episodes on <laughs> on our website, maxmikemovies.com. Without fava beans, there are no, no fava beans on the website. No, no, but there's plenty of Chianti. Uh, there is not. You can find us on the social mediums of uh, Facebook and Twitter under Max Mike Movies. You can listen to us on Spotify, also under Max Mike Movies, Ooh. and through the podcast app of our choice, Google Podcast or Apple iTunes Podcast. And also, you can, of course, email us your recipes, your suggestions, your <laughs> ideas for the best way to serve Mike under glass. Your meat-sharing coupons. Your meat-share <laughs> coupons, yep. To uh, us at Max Mike Movies, literally U.S., at Max Mike Movies. Ooh. Ah. The show. So there is, not surprising, a ton of trivia about this movie. Really? Oh, yeah. This was directed by Jonathan Demi, who has a remarkably varied career. This is, I believe, his only Oscar win as Best Director of Best Picture. He also directed another big Oscar movie, Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. That uh, Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. He in the seventies he directed a bunch of I don't know what you'd call them trash exploitation movies like Caged Heat, uh, Crazy Mama. He he's also really well known for directing um, movies, basically concert movies. He did Neil Young's Trunk Stop tour, and he directed Stop Making Sense. The oh, Talking which Heads a lot of people consider like the the greatest concert movie. Yeah. So he had, he he is a remarkable fellow, but this was considered kind of the crown of his uh, his career. The budget for this movie was nineteen million dollars. The worldwide take was two hundred and seventy-two million. Yeah, wow, gonna, and that's yeah, that, which kind of guaranteed the sequels. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. As I say, it was adapted from a series by Thomas Harris, a very notoriously shy and reclusive author. He didn't have much to do with the movie 
although finally he later said he really liked it, but he didn't like do a lot of the publicity. Uh, the books are Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal. Uh, the movies, there have been, oh, one, two, three, four. There have been four movies and a TV show. The first movie was Manhunter back in the 80s. This was directed, this was based on the book Red Dragon, but for some reason they didn't think the title was cool enough because, you know, not like dragons sound cool. Maybe they thought it sounded too much like a fantasy movie. Uh, this was directed by Michael Mann, best known for Miami Vice, and starred William Peterson, best known as as Gil Grissom from CSI. Oh, I actually really like him. He is. He was actually very good in this as Will Graham, the FBI agent who is actually the one who captures Hannibal Lecter. It's not in this movie. In this movie, Hannibal Lecter is in one scene. It's the same in the book. He's he's in one scene. He's also he's played by Ronnie Cox. Oh, ick! It's a very different. It's a very different portrayal. It's really interesting, as opposed to the weird, icy calm. This Hannibal Lecter is sort of like, kind of cold and sleazy. Hmm. Have you ever seen blood in the moonlight? Well, it's quite black. It's like yeah. <laughs> You just want to hose off the TV. Wasn't Ronnie Cox the villain in RoboCop? Uh, no. No, I know who you're thinking of, but that he was not. That was uh, Michael Ironside and some other guy. Mm. I know who you mean, but that is not Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox was a bad guy in two of the Mission Impossible movies. Older guy, white hair, glasses, you'd know him. Uh, Manhunter was pretty successful. Then there was a, long, a gap of a few years, and they made Silence of the Lambs, which was insanely successful. Um, Not only financially, Silence of the Lambs is one of only three movies in the history of the Academy Awards to win all five of the big five awards. Best Director, Best Picture, Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, and Best Screenplay, in this case, Adapted Screenplay. There have only been two others. Well, that do was do one, you know what they are? Hmm? Yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1975, and It Happened One Night in 1934. That was one with Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable. Real quick to uh, to hold off that email, it was, in fact, Ronnie Cox as the big villain of oh. uh, RoboCop. His name was oh, Jones, as you might remember. Yeah, sure. You're thinking of Clarence. Oh, maybe that's... Yeah, Michael Ironside was Clarence. Nope, that's, that's Kurtwood Smith, who was the father what? on that 70s show. <laughs> oh, Red. Lord. I thought I was sure Michael Ironside was in there somewhere. Uh, Not in that film, of course. No, maybe they just look alike. Yeah. Eh, yeah. Eh. Anyway, I'm sorry. So lots of Oscars. Lots and lots of Oscars. Yes, lots and lots of Oscars. Lots and lots of money. Uh, There was also a TV show called Hannibal. And after the... Um, somewhat less than resounding success of the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, mm -hmm. which did have a, which had a number of the characters reprise their roles, except none of the FBI people, including there was no Jodie Foster and no Sam Shepard. Was Anthony Hopkins shows. in it? Anthony Hopkins is in it oh. as Hannibal Lecter. He's there, and Gary Oldman is in it as a victim slash bad guy. What a waste. Yeah, it really was. It is not a good movie. It's a terrible rendition of but the, uh, what they do to Hannibal Lecter in that movie is pretty terrible, although not as bad as the book. Hmm. The book is about halfway through. You just go, the hell? So you've, you've anyway, read the books? I have read all three books. Oh, are they any in fact, good? In fact, I read the first two before the movie came out. Oh. And they the first two are pretty good. Hmm. They're interesting procedurals. They give a, the way they present... Hannibal Lecter in them is interesting. The way they present the Tooth Fairy, who is the serial killer in Red Dragon, is interesting. Yeah, I like the books. Uh, I did not fairy? like the book Hannibal. That's what they call him because he leaves bite marks on his victims. Okay. He, however, gets really annoyed at that and actually goes after one of the journalists for calling him that. Then he wants to be called the Red Dragon. Oh, okay. <clears throat> That's where the name comes from. Oh. Now, after Hannibal tanked, they decided we got to be able to get one more out of this, so they remade Manhunter under the title Red Dragon and brought back Anthony Hopkins and padded the living hell out of his part from the book and had Ed Norton as Edward Norton as uh, Will Graham. And how did that go? It did not. Ah. 
And despite you had, you had a remarkable cast, you had Ray Fiennes as the Tooth Fairy this time. He was really good. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, it just I, didn't work. Yeah, I literally remember nothing about it. Like I, I don't even know. Remember it coming out like previews or posters or Happy Meal it, toys yeah, or anything it did like not, that. It did not do well. Yeah. It did not. But it gives an idea of how powerful the character was. Um, Jodie Foster claims that during the first meeting between Lecter and Starling in the uh, the mental hospital or the prison or whatever the hell that thing was, uh, Anthony Hopkins making fun of her southern accent was improvised on the spot. And her shocked reaction, it's genuine. She actually felt attacked. Wow. And she later thanked Hopkins for doing that because it got such an honest reaction. Uh, to prep for the, the role, Hopkins studied the files of a lot of serial killers. He also visited prisons and studied convicted murderers and actually went to court hearings about particularly gruesome murders and serial killings. Mm, I'm going to say it paid off, but you... It really did. <laughs> the, the odd thing is, he's only on screen... This is almost a two-hour movie. He's on screen for 24 minutes and 52 seconds. This is the second shortest performance ever to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role. The first one, and I'd never heard of this, is David Niven in Separate Tables. Oh, yeah. 1958. Really? You know that one? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he, he came in at 23 minutes and 39 seconds. Wow, so he got it for Best Leading Role. Yes, that's really interesting because, like you well, said, it's twenty-four minutes out of two hours. Yeah, but he ha a lot of it is the amount of dialogue the character has. That's apparently what determines. It's not just screen oh. time; it's number of lines. Well, also in this case, it's the weight of the character because oh, God, yeah, it's not like you could in any way write him out of the movie, right? And <laughs> no. the film would not become complete without his input. Um, yeah, we'll get into <laughs> that. We'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, also, one of the things I really like, Demi's directing in this is fantastic. Little things like whenever characters are talking to Starling, they often talk directly to the camera. When she's talking to them, she's usually looking slightly off camera. The idea, Demi said he did this so the audience would like experience her point of view, but not the other characters, encouraging the, the audience to identify with her. Oh, I thought that was pretty interesting. I had no trouble empathizing with her. Yeah. Uh, I could never be in her position. I Ooh. would never want to do what she did. But I had no problem being afraid uh -huh. right along with her. Uh, the story was actually, and Harris has said this, inspired by the real-life relationship between a University of Washington criminology professor and a profiler named Robert Keppel and the serial killer Ted Bundy. He actually, Bundy helped Keppel look for the Green River Killer, who, uh, but Bundy was executed in 1989. They finally solved the Green River killings in 2001, when uh, Gary Ridgway was arrested. Well, wasn't he that killed, nice of him? What a nice yeah. young man. Oh, yes. Nice young man, that Ted Bundy. <laughs> yeah. What's a little slashing to that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when... Uh, Anthony Hopkins' agent called him in London, tell him he was sending him a script called Silence of the Lambs. Hopkins thought it was a children's movie. <laughs> what was that name? He thought, oh, how nice, I'm going to be in a kid's movie. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when he found out he was cast as Hannibal Lecter, which was, ba and he got the job based on his performance in The Elephant Man as Dr. Frederick Trevis. And he said to Demi, but Dr. Trevis was a good man. To which Demi replied, so is Lecter. He's a good man, too. He's just trapped in an insane mind. Okay. Which is a really interesting interpretation. We'll get to that. Uh, Jodie Foster tended to avoid Anthony Hopkins during their scenes together because she was terrified of him. <laughs> I heard a story, by the way. I heard Martha Stewart on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She was talking about... She had, went on a date with Anthony Hopkins once, and it was like the year that movie came out. And he invited her to his house and cooked her dinner. And she said, I was scared out of my mind the whole evening. <laughs> wow, okay. Poor Sir Anthony. I, I was really sorry to hear that. Uh, the first moth cocoon found in the victim's throats, it was made of a combination of Tootsie Rolls and gummy bears. 
So it would be edible if swallowed by accident. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't uh-huh. market that. I can see <laughs> yeah. kids everywhere eating little cocoons of death head yep. moths. That'd be great. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, Anthony Hopkins improvised that weird slurping noise you do so well. Uh, he did it spontaneously during filming, and everybody thought it was great. Apparently, Jonathan Demi got found it really annoying, but didn't say, because it really worked. But he was like, yeah. Uh, you know, it is one of the most memorable pieces of the film. I mean, yeah. that whole line about fava beans and a nice candy. Everybody remembers that. So, Yes, yes. Clarice Starling was chosen by the American Film Institute as the sixth greatest movie heroine, or excuse me, hero, out of 50, and the highest ranked female on the list. Dr. Lecter was the number one greatest movie villain, also out of 50. Yikes. Yeah. This this is a weird thing. I didn't notice this until the second or third time I watched the movie. One of the reasons Hopkins is so creepy and so seems so inhuman when he's talking, he doesn't blink. No. He very intentionally, or if he does, it is very conscious. And he did this because he had read that reptiles only blink when they want to. <laughs> and they blink consciously. He wanted to make him more inhuman, more reptilian. Okay. I mean, it certainly made him more creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Now, oddly enough, Demi didn't have the rights to the novel. The person who bought the rights to the novel was Gene Hackman. Oh. He planned to direct the movie and play either Lecter or Jack Crawford. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Gene Hackman is a great actor. He is. He could easily have done a number of parts. I don't know if he could have done Lecter. I didn't. Yeah, that's why I said a number of parts, because I think... Yeah, yeah we'll get into to Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, he actually decided not to do this after he watched a clip of himself in Mississippi Burning, which came out in 1988, at the Academy Awards, and it made him really uneasy about taking on more violent roles. He didn't want to be thought of that way. At that point? Yeah. It's a little late, Gene. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, didn't he play? No, that was that was Ray Walston. I was, it was for some reason I thought he was in Popeye, but I think that was no, no, yeah. that was Ray Walston yeah. and Robin Williams. I don't yeah. know why I would con- uh, confuse those two. The pattern on the moth's back in the movie poster is not surprisingly, if you look closely at it, not the natural pattern of the Death's Head Hawk moth. It is in fact Salvador Dali's Involuptua Morse. Are you saying that they painted a butterfly? They ripped that off from an episode of Gilligan's Island. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the pussycat swallowtail. (laughs) I knew you'd remember. Yep. There is, by the way, a death's head hawk moth. This is a real moth. There are three. One of them is the Acherontius Styx. The other two are the Acherontius Lachesis and the Acherontius Atropos. I don't know what the naming convention is, because uh, why it's this way, because Styx is a river, and Lachesis and Atropos are two of the fates from uh, Greek mythology. Oh. These things, they do eat honey. Like like they said, they raid beehives. Huh. And they're also one of the only moths that actually can make noise. This weird kind of whistling hiss. <laughs> yeah. The moths you see flying around, and I think even the moths that they used for the cocoons aren't... Uh, Death's Head Hawk Moths, they're tobacco tobacco hornworm moths. Oh, wow. And these things, when they got them, they were given like celebrity treatment. They were flown first class to the set in a special carrier. They had special living quarters, rooms with controlled humidity and heat, and they were dressed in carefully designed costumes. They were body shields with the painted skull and crossbones. On a moth? On a moth. Because <laughs> oh. apparently it was too hard to actually get one of the uh, Death's, Death's Head Moths. And and all of this, and none of them actually were nominated for Best Supporting Actor. They, they, yep, yeah, man, it's fear of an insect planet, you know? <laughs> it's fear of a short red planet, that's what it is. <laughs> yep, yep. The original producer of Manhunter passed on this movie because Manhunter did not do very well. Ah. The producer, and I want you to think about this a moment, this could have been the one who produced... Uh, Silence of the Lambs was Dino De Laurentiis. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he gave the rights to the movie to Orion Pictures for free. <laughs> when my buffalo bill die, everybody cry. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cry when Jaws die. Uh, he, however, did co-produce Hannibal and Red Dragon, which might explain what happened to those movies. Ah. Oh, God, there's another connection. 
So to Dino De Laurentiis, there's actually an actor in here that was in another big Dino De Laurentiis film. Uh, which one? Uh, he has a very small part. He plays, as best I can tell, the um, um, mortuary's organist. And he was the thief from Conan 2. Malik. Oh, oh God! Oh, he's one of the uh, the coroners. Yeah, or the, the the guys. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. I barely recognized him. Huh. And I'm not even sure he speaks. But you know, I double checked. It's oh, him. And just one last thing: Clarice Starling was one of the biggest influences for creating the character of Dana Scully, according to the X Files creator Chris Carter. Hmm. There's even a tribute of this in the movie, to this movie in the last episode of the ninth season when Scully visits Mulder in jail. And he, he tells her, I smelled you coming, Clarice. <laughs> yeah. So there is a ton of other stuff, and we'll get to some stuff in the actual movie. Yeah, there's one other thing, if I can throw it in there. There actually is one other version of this out there. Um, I don't know if it's ever been like on Broadway or anything, but there's actually oh a musical. <laughs> and it's a comedy musical, and it's called Silence. And I saw it in a, in a local production uh, here in the Michigan area, uh, and it was really funny. Uh, huh. I was surprised. I was like, how could you possibly make this funny? But it was. And part of it was that the people's performances were really over the top, and that really helped. But uh, Okay, I can see yeah, that. Yeah, just you know, a little piece of trivia. But by all means, for those who somehow don't know, will you tell us the story? <clears throat> tell me a story, Daddy. Sure, the plot. Clarice Starling... Jodie Foster is a driven, ambitious FBI trainee who gets a chance to interview one of the world's most notorious serial killers in captivity, Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, Sir Anthony Hopkins. She quickly forms a strange sort of bond with Lecter, who offers to help her catch a new serial killer, Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine. No relation. Uh, in exchange, ultimately, for insight into Clarice herself, but can Clarice trust this man, who others call a monster? No. And the clock and the clock is ticking for Buffalo Bill's next victim. That's pretty much it. I would say that you summed it up exceedingly neatly, and yet you. left tons out, which is as it oh, should yeah. be. <clears throat> as it should be. Um, I want to get to one thing real quick. I wanted to tackle the elephant in the room because we're going to have okay. to talk about this. I know you're not going to want to, and it, the, the yeah. audience is going to be upset, but. We need to talk about Jodie Foster's performance because it is so fantastic. Yeah, she is amazing in this. I mean, she just... She's pretty much good uh, in everything I've seen her in. I, mean, I could probably mm -hmm. find something where she wasn't quite amazing, but... I would say for well, her. Well, I don't think she was. I don't think she was so great in uh, Napoleon and Samantha. I didn't see it. She, well, she was eight years old at the time, and she got attacked by a lion during the filming, so that might have had some problem. Some of the problems. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, uh, I would. No, no, she is amazing in this. I mean, this is a signature signature performance for her and Anthony Hopkins because at this point he's not a sir, but you know, mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons he becomes one. Um, and it's also in a way part of his downfall because he becomes such a big star that he starts to literally do anything yeah obviously he ends up with basically olivier syndrome which is i you pay me enough and i i i'll do it yeah and yeah there's i'm still i'm still traumatized by his animated ass from beowulf <laughs> oh lord but Ugh. this is a stellar performance from both of them um, Jodie Foster is equal parts strength and vulnerable, or vulnerability, I guess. And yeah, confidence and uncertainty. We get so much out of her character. Yeah, sure, some of it is explained. Some of it we see, some of it is told. And mm -hmm. that's fine, because it's not at any point expository. Um, or at least not in a bad way. But I think one, this was probably, as an adult, because I know she did a lot of child stuff she was on tv shows here and there and stuff yeah, like that yeah. but this is also kind of her big like what is she going to do next and if i remember for the most part i think she cherry picks from here out because we don't see her often but when we do like in contact which will come a few years later it tends to be a really amazing performance her performances are often good she did a few movies that didn't work so well i, I never saw panic room but it, it didn't really interest me um, oh, come on. Kristen Stewart's first movie? Is it really? <laughs> I believe she's the daughter. Is she the one who sits there going, 
Um, um, <laughs> line. It's a possibility. Um, <laughs> so yeah, she's. I mean, you would not have this film if you either of these people were missing. You might have another good film, but I don't think you'd have this film. Demi actually originally wanted Michelle Pfeiffer for that part, and uh, didn't get her because she wanted too much money. Foster, as an adult, wasn't as as big a name. And apparently when he when Demi first met her, when he saw her just walking purposefully down the corridor, he was like, okay, that's it. I found Clarice Starling. Just by the way she walked. I, now, to be fair, I don't know Jodie Foster's actual height, but I love the fact that... She's 5'3". She, well, they don't try to hide it at all. In fact, no. they emphasize it at certain points. And there's points where you can see the other FBI students whatever you call them please trainees yeah and there's there are guys that are giving her a hard time and she's like yeah whatever and they're all looking down at her and they're I'm all there towering just, over her yeah mm. and i'm all like you guys have nothing <laughs> yep and she takes it you can tell she she's aware of it she doesn't like it but she's not she is, has decided i will not be intimidated yeah and, some, and that happens all the time with the not just with the, the FBI when she's in the funeral parlor and surrounded by the police. Yeah, and the local cops are all just looking down at her, and she's uncomfortable. But she's like, "I am not going to blink. I am not going to give you the satisfaction." I love that sequence also where they're all they've all crowded into the morgue. All of these local cops were just getting in the way, and even Crawford doesn't know how to get rid of them, but she does. And she starts overemphasizing her West Virginia accent. And she's like, excuse me, you officers and gentlemen, you know, we need to take care of her. We appreciate what you've done. And they look at her like, I I don't, this is this tiny little woman. I should be, I should be the one being intimidated, but I have to do what she's telling me. And I'm not sure why. I think that I, one of the things I like most about the character and that shows her strength is that unlike her guy counterparts, they allow her to be frightened and to show it, but the fact that she's frightened and overcomes it is so much stronger than grr, grit my teeth, shoot things. Um, it, she's just such a great character. And yeah. she's so believable because she's allowed to be actually human as opposed to, you know, Rambo or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't say enough about her performance in this. So yeah, she is amazing. Yeah. And I do like, again, Demi does a really interesting job, especially around Quantico, the FBI training facility with giving, and they never, it's never explicit, which is the best part, but you know, she has trouble mm-hmm. with the others because she's a woman. We see so few, we send her, see her friend, Ardelia and a couple of other people, but most of the trainees are men, and they're all bigger than she is, and they're all kind of looming over her. And you can tell she's like, Ugh. yeah, she has to work twice as hard as everybody else. Yeah. Oddly enough, you know, the FBI really cooperated with the making of this film because they thought she was such a great character. She, they thought this movie would basically be like a, a recruitment picture for female agents. Yeah, and I'm sure in some way it probably was. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I was actually doing a little research for reasons I I don't even understand on Top Gun, of all things. And uh, sure enough, that film was a big recruitment boost. They actually oh, had, of course it was. They actually had people at theaters, like they could sign you up as you came out of the movie. So I, be- I completely believe that. Hey, there's another actor in here I'd like to point out. I don't know if you noticed him. Um, I saw him in the opening credits, and I'm like, wait, uh, what? I know who you're going to say uh, the 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 chief of the FBI, Roger the Corman. <laughs> Roger Corman, who was you know he was an, Jonathan Demme is another protege yeah. of Roger Corman. I figured it had and to yeah, be. Yeah, he gave him a, a, a one line. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. But there Roger he was. friggin' Corman. <laughs> Roger Corman. Uh, for those who don't know, was probably the oh, father of the grade Z level science fiction teen horror films of the 50s and 60s i wouldn't say grade z come on that's ed wood yeah that's his fair. movies I weren't mean, that bad carmen was a, was a was a d movie director yeah and he was like known for getting films done exceedingly quickly and cheaply but yeah. he had some amazing people where i think jack nicholson's first film was with him it was the yep. original little shop he of discovered every, that was the thing Corman did not have much talent, but he was really good at recognizing it in other people. He gave boosts to Francis Ford Coppola, yep. Ron Howard, Nicolas Cage, Jack Nicholson, like you said. Yeah. Tons of people owe their careers to Roger Corman. Yeah. 
And so apparently Jonathan Dippy's like, hey, you want to be in my giant big budget film? And it's like, sure. What big budget? 19 million wasn't that much. This was a... Even in 1991, that was not a big-budget movie. Considering what's it, in there, like no special effects and stuff, yeah. it's not a small chunk of change. I mean, it's not no, Star it's Wars, not. but it's still... I'm sure a lot of it went to Anthony Hopkins, and you know, a good chunk went to Jodie Foster, as it should have, but it's not like it was some indie film, either. The directing in this Tucking of Demi, is, I think, is amazing. Well, Little things like when she go, when Charling first goes to... The uh, the hospital, the mental institution, to see Lecter, and she's standing in the ante room, just about to go in, where she meets Barney, the uh, <laughs> the the only intelligent person in that place, and that slow pan around the room, which gets you both freaked out and claustrophobic, is so well done. And even the first shot of Lecter, as the camera just goes down the hall, and we slowly see him appear like this mythological figure yeah the way he the way he appears all the other she sees like three other inmates yeah including a really unpleasant scene with one yeah that's with migs yes well we don't have to go into too much detail on that but they're all either leaning against the bars or sitting on the bed they're all in contact with something lector is standing alone in the center of his cell not touching anything totally separate from his surroundings and absolutely in control just standing his posture is flawless he just stands there like he's been sculpted there and it immediately gives this sense of of power about him and you certainly don't know what you're going to get like the first no. time you saw the like when did you see this in the, in the theater when it came out i saw this in the th- theater i believe four times i saw i've only seen it once before this doing this show and I don't know why I went because <laughs> um, it I don't I don't remember how it was marketed, but with however it was marketed, I was not prepared for this film. And you get to Hannibal Lecter, like you said, and you see it exactly as you described it and you have no idea what you're going to get. And it's not nope. that. Because, like, whatever you were thinking of, it wasn't that. Because as soon as he starts talking, you automatically... I don't know. I remember shrinking back in my chair. And mm. I certainly did it this time. It's like, oh, yeah, right, this again. Um, man. Uh, and the thing is, is that you you will sometimes get performances that are signature like this. Uh, one of the ones I'm thinking of is um, uh, Dustin Hoffman sure. in Rain Man. And at the time, when the when the performance came out... It's like, wow, we've never seen autism before. We don't know what it's like. This is a really neat performance. And then later on, when there's more information and you may have met an autistic person or there's been more, there's actually been autistic people in films, you realize it's a little overdone. It doesn't really Mm -hmm. hold water. This performance, I fully believe in what Martha Stewart said. I would never sit down to a meal with Anthony Hopkins, especially (laughs) if he cooked it. He's apparently a very nice man. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he's a very, yeah. I have seen this movie many times. I don't like horror movies. I am not. I admit I'm kind of compelled by them. I'm really interested because a lot of them have like supernatural elements, and I like fantasy movies. Uh, I di- I don't really enjoy them. I don't like being scared. I uh, this movie. Now that I've seen it so many times, most of it doesn't frighten me because I know what's going to happen. Except for Hopkins, I never get over how intense and disturbing. His performance is. Yeah. Even just the little things when he just looks at her and says, Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Don't hurt me. Um, real quick, since you brought this up, this is one of my talking points. Is this a horror movie? In some ways it is. I mean, it's about... Uh, most murder movies, most serial killer movies are sort of classified as horror movies. Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, any of those technically it is i think it transcends the genre i think this becomes a psychological study i think it's a drama see now i would put it in drama because of two things one i don't think the point of the film is to scare you i think the point of the film is to broaden your understanding of the human condition and wish that you never had seen it um the other i think though is that it the director at no point exults in the violence of what's happened. And no, it's always horrible. It's never glorified. Well, even but when we see the corpses, 
right? Mm-hmm. We never never sit there and like the camera doesn't sit there and linger on them. It's actually in a way it's worse. Like the scene where they go to the 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 woman that's been found in the river and they go down there and uh, they're doing the autopsy with the FBI agents. And they the first thing they do, which tells you right now that things are going to be really unpleasant, is they smear that little cream under their nose. Yeah, that's Vicks VapoRub. And by the way, I know some... I had a friend who worked in a morgue, and she told me... She saw the movie, and she said, no, yeah. that doesn't work. There is nothing, nothing that you can inhale or put under your nose that will in any way drown out the smell of advanced decomposition. There's nothing. And to be fair... I think they even show that in the movie because there's one point because she's like, oh, and she still smells it. So, yeah. but the fact that they do that and all three of them do it just lets you know, okay, this is going to be awful. And then I actually looked away because I didn't remember how the scene played out. But the camera doesn't sit there and go inch by inch or like zoom in and out over the horrible details. They actually show you very little up close and you see the whole corpse only sort of in a side view from a, a little bit ways a, a ways away. And so I don't I think that that really helps it not be a horror film because it's not trying to like gross out the audience. It's just trying to say this is how horrible. It's more about the psychology than it is about the biology. Yeah, I would agree with some of that. I do have to say there are horrific elements in it when uh Sergeant Doyle has been turned into that horrible art installation in Lecter's cell yeah. when he's gutted him. That is incredibly disturbing. When they yeah. find the severed head of Benjamin Raspail, although I gotta say, one of the things I love about that sequence, it's so tense when she's in the storage yep. bin, but there's no musical sting. No. There's no jump scares. There's no cat. There's no jump <laughs> Yeah, there's no cat. There's no jump scares anywhere in this movie. No. It's all about careful building of tension. There's no boo. No. And I... For me, that's why I would still put it in drama. I suppose you could put it in thriller. Which, I would say thriller. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's, for me, and, and the direction, you, it's interesting you point out the direction. For me, the th- one of the things I liked about the direction is it was so not flashy that it almost mm-hmm. just sort of s- steps out of the way. It is entirely done in service to the story. There is no point, I don't know what Demi's signature style is, mm. and I don't think that's a bad thing. Because in this case, like you, you keep pointing these things out. It's like the way he presents things is entirely to keep you in the story. It's not to draw your attention to techniques or yeah. There aren't a lot of sudden close-ups or zooms. No, there are a lot of tracking shots. Right. There are a lot of close-ups, and there are little gimmicks. There are a lot of uh, shots where you when Lecter is talking to Starling and. You can see when one is speaking, you can see the other one is reflected in some surface. So the idea is, you know, they're they're both there at the same time. Some of the stuff, though, is so subtle. Mm. I love the bit when he is in Tennessee and he's in that horrible, it's called a Kansas City cube or some such. It's an old style, uh, quick welded jail cell. Mm -hmm. You can basically put together anywhere and it's almost inescapable. (laughs) uh, Physically. Uh, I mean, it's, you can't break out of it and he doesn't. He Mm. outsmarts them. Mm. But when she he's sitting there inside, he's in in the cage, and she's the one pacing back and forth like a caged animal. <laughs> and after a bit, you, it gets less and less clear who's on which side of the bars. Well, and I think also that we know he's got that pen, and that's all he needs. And for those of us who are wondering, I've seen handcuff keys. The handcuff key itself is a very simple thing. It's literally one, I don't know what you'd call it, one little Notch. flap. Yeah, it's one flap. So, I have been told by people who know that if you know what you're doing, you can pick a handcuff, a handcuff uh, with a paperclip. Yeah. They aren't complicated. No. Um, They're supposed to be durable, not pickproof. And, of course, you know, this is all a reflection of the, I can't remember the character's name, but the character who's in charge of the initial prison. Oh, Dr. Chilton. Chilton, yeah. And it's oh. like, what a, a dimwit he is. Um, and I love the way he, the contrast between him and the orderly Barney when you first meet them, instantly, first off, you hate Chilton after five seconds because yep. he's such a condescending jerk and the way he's hitting on Starling and the way he never calls her agent, he always calls her Miss Starling. Yeah. And then you meet Barney and even just the way he says hi and says, you know, I've left a chair out for you, leans a little closer, you'll be fine. Yeah. You like you meet first off, you immediately like Barney and instantly, you know, 
Barney's the reason Lecter is still in the cell. Well, also, Barney fully appreciates the absolute danger of all of these people. Yeah. I feel he really does bad not for underestimate him. them. Oh, God. And that job is must be awful. Must be. You find out in the sequel, by the way, when uh, yeah, he's lost his job because, you know, the place shuts down. He has to make a living by, like, selling things he collected from Lecter, like the oh, mask and wow, that's sad. drawings and such. Yeah, that's the way he has to stay alive. And when he that sequence where Chilton is gloating over Lecter, you really gonna think you're going to go to the beach and walk and see the birdies? And Barney is standing there holding on to Le- Lecter is in a full straight jacket. He's got a face protector. That, by the way, in the book is supposed to be just a hockey mask. Oh. But the one they use in the movie is so much more effective. It looks so demonic, but it's so simple. Mm. And, of course, you can see his face better. Right. And Chilton is just, like, swanning around the cell, totally oblivious. And Barney is has his hands locked on the hand truck that Lecter is tied to. And he never takes his eyes off Lecter. And he's like, I... Do not. I know how dangerous this guy is. It doesn't matter how helpless he looks. He's the most dangerous thing in the building. Yeah, it's it's so well done, and you just really. I wish there'd been more Barney in the movie. You know, <laughs> Team Barney. <laughs> um, so we both have have uh, commented on the directorial ship. Is that a word? Oh, it is now. Yeah. Uh, of this, the direction of this film. Uh, how did this movie influence other movies, or did it even influence them? Oh, I, absolutely. So how would you absolutely. say? Now, I don't mean like, oh, we're going to see tons and tons of impersonations of Anthony Hopkins as like... No, 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 no. But it did change. It created a whole new idea of presenting the serial killer. The serial killers usually were like American Psycho, the guys who, uh, you know, just seemed normal on this top but were just boiling rages you started seeing everywhere these serial killers who were just super duper smart and were very calm they had that same kind of lector in humanity they all tried to make them that same kind of reptilian uh he's just he's not really insane he's just sort of at a 90 degree angle to sanity there was a lot of that in a lot of movies hell the what is it that book the red, the blacklist the movie the blacklist you know it's a series it all over the place it changed a lot of the portrayal of serial killers so what you're saying is that uh, it allowed serial killers to have more of an uh, a better representation and it did them a nice favor to make them see yeah more unfortunately <laughs> yes because let's face it lecter is the coolest character in this movie he is fascinating and he he's so erudite and also, they de-emphasize. They emphasize this a little in the movie, but it's not as clear in the. It's clearer in the book. He's also insanely physically powerful. He's incredibly strong, and he doesn't look it. Mm. Um, I will say that this movie freaked me out five ways to Tuesday. Uh, yeah. One of the things I remember, and I was actually surprised. I remember most of this film, like. It's not just little bits. Of, oh, yeah, I remember the fava beans. Everyone remembers the fava beans. I actually remember <laughs> most of the film, and I only saw it once. This is a film I've never oh. wanted to see again just because... Oh, it sorry. Was, it, well, yeah, it, it was that good at its job, right? And yeah. the one of the scenes I remember, and I wasn't even positive it was from this film, but I was pretty sure, was the scene where Buffalo Bill, we see him get his victim. And that thing, that little scene, made me never want to help anybody ever again. Yeah, that was not a good scene for Good Samaritans. No. Yeah, poor <laughs> Catherine is just like, oh, here's this guy has got a broken arm. And he's trying to move Except a sofa. It he's trying to move a sofa. I'll help him. Yeah. Like, no, no, never do that. Nope. Well, it does emphasize... Anyone, don't ever get into a van. Don't get into vans, ever. I don't care if it's your van. Don't get into it. Vans are evil. Yeah, um, especially if they have dungeon poles on the inside of the doors. But yeah, Seriously. Yeah, I mean, I can't blame her because the, the times are different, and I'm sure this yeah, film gave it, people it was, ideas. But. And surely she was clearly just a nice person. I really liked her, by the way. This is Catherine Martin, the the. Uh, last victim of buffalo bill who does not die no and she's because she's not just a passive damsel in distress for part of it she just screamed but she actually figures out a really good way to stymie him yep she does she and, she's and active it, yeah although i have to and say why cr- is the senator's daughter living basically in like the worst apartment ever <laughs> yeah i i was a little curious about that too but mm. yeah, whatever 
Oh, and again, talk about the the lines. We remember, you know, fava beans and good evening, Clarys. Oh. It rubs the lotion on <laughs> its skin, skin, or it gets the or hose else again. It gets the, and that thing of co- never referring, calling Catherine it, right? And that emphasizes that. And this is apparently a real thing. One of the serial killers tend to be sociopaths. Sociopaths are people who don't believe other people are real people. Right. They think they're like cutouts or just not real. They don't have real feelings. That's how they can do these horrendous things to them. Well, and he's very clearly trying to keep her as an object. She's a source of skin for him. Well, remember when the uh, the senator comes on and, and has her plea? There's, I think, of yeah. an FBI agent watching saying, wow, look at that. They're repeating her name every time to make it yep. seem more like she's a person. So, yeah, they, it, they really underline that without coming in, out and saying, you know, if we keep saying her name like that because serial killers blah 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 um one of the other reasons that i was creeped out by this movie and have had trouble even thinking of watching it again as good as it was was that its portrayal of the savage ugliness of humankind is really too good (laughs) yeah and we get two really good images of it i mean they're so different lecter and buffalo bill i mean despite the fact lecter is so civilized even though his nickname is hannibal the cannibal right because he ate his victims. He that he violated one of the oldest taboos in human culture. I, and that's horrific. And yet we are more drawn to him because he's so polite. And, and but he says this. He says discourtesy is unspeakably awful to me. So you're saying that he and, violated ape laws, what you're saying. He ape law, <laughs> yes, he had violated the words of the lawgiver. Yeah, you no, both... And, and yet, and, you know, skinning people, that's still pretty bad. You, you both but, are more interested in him and hope you never are in the same state as he is. I wouldn't want to be on the same side of the planet as him. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. No, he no, he is, to me, he is so much more frightening than Buffalo Bill. Um, and they also throw in tiny, tiny little bits of humor, and it is so dark. Like when he's in that cage, whatever you called it, the Kansas yeah. Cube or whatever. Yeah, I, um, yeah. Did you see one of the things he had to read? It was like, oh, really? It was- bon Appetit <laughs> magazine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Like, did somebody, was like some poor misguided person, like, you know, maybe if we show him regular food, he won't do, no, I just, (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah, and I couldn't laugh, like, I saw that, now, the only thing I could do is, wow, that's all I could do, I couldn't laugh, because it's like, I'm way too uncomfortable at this point to laugh, I'm sorry, no. Um, or, yeah, or when Lecter is even trying to be sort of witty, and when Clarice visits him in this, in that uh, cage, and he just says, people will say we're in love. <laughs> um, I'm peeing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, That whole segment, the last interaction they have in person, is so brilliant. And it's both of them. Yeah. Where Because Lecter, at heart, is a psychiatrist. He's fascinated by people and their minds and the way they work and what he wants. As he says, you don't have any more vacations on Anthrax Island to trade. <laughs> All he wants is a vi- a window into her head, which is terrifying because everyone has said you don't let him in your head, and you can tell why. Yeah, but she does. She's so, and it's hard to tell. Is it because she's actually trusts him to a certain degree, or she's so dedicated and so desperate to save this woman? She will. She lets him in and tells him about her greatest trauma, which is you know trying to save the lamb. Yeah, and at that point. You notice they're doing the close-ups. You can't see the bars anymore. All you can see is the two of them talking to each other. And the way Jodie Foster, you can hear the child in her voice. You can hear the, 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 the not being able to understand this terrible thing that is being done. Like, why do people do this? Why would anyone do this? Why would they slaughter these adorable, fluffy creatures? I also think that one of the strengths of this, and this just occurred to me listening to you talk about this, is one of the things that they don't do in this film, and it's a very important don't, is they never try to explain it. They never try to say, well, you know, the reason that Lecter's the way he is is because when he was a child, he was forced to eat liver, which he didn't like, and that bothered him, and he became blah, 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 blah. That, by the way, the fourth movie, Hannibal Rising, does try to do that. Because I honestly and, don't think we know. We—that's the thing about him. 
there's no way to explain what he is. I, what, what she says, when the cop says, is it true? He's some kind of vampire. And she just looks at him and says, there is no word for what he is. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't think there is any logical series of events that you could sit there and go, oh, well, if this happens and then this happens and then that happens, then you get Lecter, the Hannibal Lecter, the cannibal. And it's like, yeah. no, no, we don't. There is no know. explanation. And that's also that's true about serial killers in general. Yeah. Nobody, they say, oh yeah, they're made this way by abuse. Like, no, a lot of people get abused and they don't turn into serial killers. Right. And I think that if they had tried at any point to show us, and that's why I wouldn't watch the other movies. I don't want to know you more shouldn't. about him. I mean, for two reasons. One, I don't want to know more about him. Um, yeah. But another, it's like, it's trying to explain this, especially if you know there is no answer. There just yeah. isn't. Um, would would cheapen everything. Um, yeah. It's the mystery. Sometimes the mystery needs to not be solved. Um, same thing with with Jamie Gum. Um, a really good. good performance for five seconds, right? Yeah, he doesn't get to do much, but yeah. Boy, is he weird! Like oh, he starts so off like when he's when he's talking to Starling, it's like, oh yeah, he's just you know, it's somebody who's not. He's a little off. And the longer he talks, you realize he really has no idea how to hold a conversation with anybody. No. And it helps explains, oh. you know, the sociopath uh, in him. It doesn't explain how he became that way. But we can see more and more, this guy, no. Something's broken. Yeah. And, the, and they're talking about how, you know, Lecter talks about how he's not a transsexual, but he thinks he is because he's he hates his identity. He assumes it's tied to gender. Right. And the things where he's like trying to be feminine, mm -hmm. when he's trying to pitch his voice higher, and you can tell he can't do it. No. His voice is so uh, gravelly and deep and, uh, let's say it, butch. Everybody he's, knows. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like that. Pretty much like uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Oh, and that creepy dance he does. Yeah. Tuck back. Uh, you know, they do that in the comedy. And uh, the guy who did it, I give him props for actually coming out on stage and, and doing it. But he did it, and you don't see a wow. thing. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. That must be really uncomfortable. Um, one last uh, little talking point, at least mm. on my side. Uh, so at the end, we get a little phone call. Oh, yeah. Do you think, or did it feel to you like that was meant as a sequel beg? I didn't feel that way. I just thought it was tying up a loose end. What really freaked me out, the first time I saw this in the theater, you know, he does the, I'm having an old friend for dinner. <laughs> I thought it was the old guy at first. Uh, there's Dr. Chilton and getting like, off oh. the plane. People applauded. Wow. People in the theater were applauding that the cannibalistic serial killer was about to murder and eat his doctor. <laughs> nice. I, I remember just that I, that was one of the scariest moments in the movie for me was looking at the people around me clapping. Wow. Okay. I mean, he's a douche, but he's not yeah, killing on. people. So, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's all I have for talking points and uh, uh, my notes. How about yourself? Sorry. I got one other, uh, one other thing. The thing is, again, that sort of act speaks against this as a horror movie is there are only really two action sequences, and they're comparatively short. One's Lecter's Escape. Which is horrific. Yes. And the other is Clarice finding James Gum and, ch and going after him in the basement, which, the f God, the first time I saw that, my nerves were just so oh, tight. Oh, man. <laughs> when he's following her around wearing the night vision goggles and you have the sense that, oh, he's just so getting off on the sense of power that he can see her and she looks terrified and she can't see him. And, then, you know, and he's reaching his hand out an inch from her face and she can't tell. And then he shows you, boys and girls, the lesson to take away from this movie is don't use a friggin' double-action pistol. Because <laughs> he has to cock it. Yeah. And one thing law, officer, law enforcement people know is the sound of a gun being cocked and it's really loud and really easy to home in on. Yeah. Well, to be don't fair, do that. I got the impression that he didn't use it very much because that's not how he worked. Mm. Like, maybe at the very end... Uh, yeah, that's what he would use to execute. Yeah, but it's like it's His not victims, like they're in a yeah. they're in a tiny little the bottom of a well, so it's not like yeah, they, yeah. no this this guy was not a gun specialist. You could uh, also tell, like wow, of course, it's funny you got this gigantic, ridiculous uh, forty four magnum. What do you need? It's like compensating a little. <laughs> and the last two words that I'm going to mention are microfiche and pinto. 
What? Those are two things I noticed in the film. It's like she's looking up stuff in newspapers. Oh, like, oh, oh my god, microfiche! I remember that. That's Boy, right. Nobody is misses that. She driving that. the Pinto. She is driving the Pinto. <laughs> oh wow! Which, for those who don't know, was a car that had an unfortunate um, ability to, uh, um, if struck from burst behind, into flames. <laughs> a friend yeah. of ours once wanted to uh, uh, weld a girder onto the front of his very giant Chrysler and spray paint Pinto Killer on it. <laughs> So, but I suppose yeah. we should get to that point. We should. The Roundup. So, Max. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of this film? Oh, yeah, again, I think that's been pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, I have. I never get tired of this movie. Ooh. I think this movie, this is brilliant. This is one of my, I would have put this in one of my favorite things, except it's so hard to watch. Yeah. It is tense. As I say, it's not as scary because I know what happens. I know the plot so well. But Anthony Hopkins will never not freak me out in this role mm. because he is so believable and just he, he is the embodiment of the worst parts of humanity as well as some of the good ones. You know, he is so damn polite. And and, when, and Clarice gets this as she says, I don't think he'll come after me. He'd consider it rude. <laughs> well, he tells her he won't in the, in the little yeah, phone yeah, call. Yeah, but thing. she knew it already. She knew it before he told her. And now here's a question for you. So then what does she do? Does she leave it be and not go after him? Um, I Well, first of all, the idea is she's, he leaves the country. Right. So she he's out of the FBI's jurisdiction. This also comes up in the sequel. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I think she goes on... And just gets on with her life and her career. Hmm. What do you think? About the film in general, it is yeah. an amazing film. That it won the big five. I, I don't know what else was up that year. I kind of don't care. Um, it doesn't really matter. It is... I don't even know how long it was. I think it's around two hours. I don't think it's that it's, long. But the, It's an hour and 58 minutes. There yeah. you go. So the pacing on this film... Like Max said, there's really only two quote-unquote action sequences. And they are knuckle-bitingly tense oh yeah but the rest of it is like you're tense because you, there's stuff you really don't want to see and they thankfully don't shove your face in it mm -hmm. and it's handled so well and it's the performances like it's it's not quite a two-person film but it's close um it's sort of like my dinner with andre except andre's <laughs> the, the, the meal uh <laughs> Yeah, we didn't even talk about Sam Shepard as Jack Crawford. He does a really nice, understated job. He does. Um, and he's a character that I would see more of, too. I would see more of these characters, except that I feel, at the ending, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Um, yeah, I don't, it is perfectly satisfying. Yeah, I don't want to see any more. I li really just don't. It's a freaky film. I watched it in the middle of the day, hoping that you know maybe a cartoon or something afterwards, <laughs> hey, I'll play some Nintendo, and I won't have nightmares. Thankfully, I didn't. Because I, I was, yeah, not looking forward to this. It is a freaky film. Uh, I honestly don't know if you could make this film today the way it was made. I think you could I make a Hannibal so. film, but it oh, would yeah. be far more gory, and I think that the psychological depth would be missing. Um, I think they would also ch they would try to sexualize the relationship. Or something. Between, or something. And the fact that there's nothing, there's no hint of that. The most intimate moment when he just touches her finger with his. That's more than enough. Thank and, you. <laughs> yeah, it's not erotic at all. It's this weird, it's like, you get the feeling that's as affectionate as he could ever get with anyone. That, ever. Yeah. I'm also just wondering how many of his patients came back for a second appointment. Yes, like, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll be, I'll call you. I'll, I'll be calling you. Bye. <laughs> so, um, speaking of coming so, back for another appointment. Yes, what is our what is our next heaping helping of uh, fava bean garnish? Well, in case you hadn't noticed, we forgot to do something before starting this episode. What's that? Discuss what the next movie is, so you actually don't know. Oh, I, I really don't, so surprise me. Well, funny you should ask, Max, because next week's movie is a musical romp through... No, it's not. <laughs> Uh, next week's movie is a is a weird one because um, that seems to be my job these days is um, uh, to be fair the name of the director escapes me it's a three namer that's all I remember it is John also Paul Sartre uh, no it's you not sure? Paul Michael Glazier either 
Oh. Uh, however, uh, the film is a rarity in that the soundtrack of the film was done by one performer, uh, un- not entirely unlike back when The Graduate came out and all of the music was done by Simon and Garfunkel, except, of course, those were two people. Um, this is a film that I think a lot of people probably haven't seen, uh, but it's a film that I really like. It's an ensemble cast, not unlike Robert Altman, although it's not Robert Altman. I think it's Paul Michael Thomas, something like that. Uh, the film is Magnolia. Ah, Magnolias. And it has, oddly enough, what I believe is the best performance by Tom Cruise ever. Okay, that's an interesting point. I'll be looking forward to seeing that again. I, I've only seen it once, 100 years ago. Yeah, I saw it in the theater, but uh, it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think it's Jason Robard's last performance. He's in this. Ah. Uh, but it's a an interesting film. And the 90s, surprisingly, when we looked into this, had some very interesting films that I didn't remember were all done within the same decade. Um. So yeah, could join us next week for that musical masterpiece, <laughs> that uplifting, soul-faring film, Magnolia. Yes, and be sure everyone out there to rub the lotion on your skin. And don't forget the fava beans. <laughs> This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.